All right, all right, take your seats, everyone. This time we're addressing expectations, so please take your seats. Thank you. Welcome to the Change Academy podcast, a show for people who are ready to stop cataloging all the reasons they can't succeed and start collecting evidence that they can. I'm Monica Reinagel. And I'm Brock Armstrong. If you've ever thought that you just don't have what it takes to succeed, well, you are listening to the right show because in this episode, we're looking at the phenomenon of self-fulfilling prophecy. Our expectations powerfully impact what happens to us. If we believe something is going to help, or if we believe that something's going to hurt, or that it's going to suck, or that it's going to be fun, well, our experience will probably fulfill that belief. So let's take a closer look at why this is and why this matters. Yeah, I think there's more here than meets the eye. Absolutely. So for example, if we believe that we are genetically predisposed to be overweight or that we have a slow metabolism, maybe makes it hard for us to lose weight or that we have a bigger than normal appetite, which makes it really difficult for us to eat less we are much more likely to have exactly the difficulties that we think we will, regardless of whether those beliefs are true or not. Right. And this has been demonstrated in research studies. If I tell you, for example, that you have a specific genetic mutation, which makes you hungrier than other people, for example, you're then likely to rate your appetite and your hunger as being higher and to actually eat more even if you don't have any genetic mutation at all. You know, I actually, and I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned this in this podcast before, but I actually have the variants of the dopamine D2 receptor gene, which you don't really need to know much about, except that it's linked to behavioral traits such as impulsivity, sensation-seeking, and a preference for immediate rewards. Yikes. <laughs> all of which can lead to some pretty unhealthy eating and drinking and other pleasure-seeking behaviors. And when I found that out, luckily, I'm uh, self-aware enough, or at least my friends and family are, that I actually found it pretty hilarious because like, my friends, and including you, refer to me as a staunch stoic on many occasions. Mm. So in my case, the, the genes are actually kind of irrelevant to me because I believe so strongly that I am in control, but I can totally see how if somebody isn't that self-aware or hasn't had that reinforcement in the past could really latch onto that and be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm prone to impulsivity. But for me, I immediately dismissed it, but I kind of got lucky, I think. Well, yeah, because our beliefs subtly and not so subtly affect our decision-making and our actions, which, right. you know, create certain results, but they also affect what we pay attention to. Mm. So we're going to be predisposed to notice and remember and recall evidence and events that support our beliefs. And at the same time, we're likely to overlook or forget evidence that does not support those beliefs. Right. We see that in the Way Less program all the time. Right. But look, it's not just that we behave in ways that fulfill our expectations or that we interpret what happens to us through that lens, although both of those things are absolutely true. The crazy thing is that our expectations can actually change our physiological response to inputs like diet and exercise and stress. <laughs> it's crazy. Why? Because your brain is a prediction machine. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, we, you know, we think, we tend to think that our bodies just respond to the things that happen to them. So when we eat something, the body responds to that. 
If we perform a certain exercise, our bodies will react to that. Right. But the brain actually can't afford to just wait around and see what's going to happen to it because simply responding to the things in our environment as they happen, that's not good enough <laughs> to ensure our survival. We actually have to be able to anticipate and predict what's going to happen so that we can rev our engine, so that we can be ready for it. I suppose that makes a lot more sense in a historic kind of context than it does in like current day, but I can totally see that in a hunter-gatherer situation. You really can't afford to wait to see what happens. You've got to be ready. Yeah, you've already got to be running. So when our brain thinks that we're about to get something to eat, it's just going to go ahead and start releasing digestive enzymes and insulin to begin processing the glucose, for example. Yeah. And this is happening in countless ways throughout all the different systems of our bodies. And it's a big part of the explanation for why our expectations have such a powerful impact on our results or for why the placebo response to fake medications is so huge right. because we are actually responding to things before they happen just in the anticipation of what's about to happen the whole placebo thing is so fascinating i absolutely am enamored with that whole idea i've done so many deep dives and research into it it really is a fascinating and complex thing right and and it it works because we have an expectation that whatever we're taking is going to make a difference and yeah. and that's really the point i really want everyone to consider what would happen, what would be possible if they sincerely expected to succeed. Hmm. So when you sincerely expect to run faster or to feel less hungry or maybe to sleep better, hmm. your mind, your body, and your will, or to put it another way, your attention, intention, and actions are all going to be conspiring to fulfill those expectations. This is such a big deal. And if you're wondering why Monica puts so much mustard on attention, intention, and action, just take a look in our back catalog and you'll find uh, an entire podcast episode about just that. But what you were just saying there reminds me of uh, years ago when I was working with a lot of endurance athletes and, and people who were really concentrating on how to fuel their bodies to get the most out of them. But I still wanted them to eat a lot of vegetables and, and eat a well-rounded diet. I started in increasing their vegetable intake. And then one day I realized that if I called it a big ass salad that they were having for lunch, rather than a heart healthy veggie bowl or something along those lines, they were first more likely to eat it and second more likely to enjoy it and third more likely to actually feel fueled and energetic and satisfied after they ate it mm. again setting those expectations just by calling it something slightly different does make a really big difference but okay getting back to that thing between our ears so like monica said while our brain is predicting your mind or your thoughts are making suggestions so Every thought that you have is a suggestion of some type or another. For example, your mind may suggest that you're tired and that you should give up on whatever you're working on or that you should take an easier path because you're feeling kind of worn out. But if you pause, you can actually discover some new suggestions from your mind and your thoughts. 
For example, you might discover that you will feel good once that work is done, or maybe that you do actually have the ability and the energy to finish things even when you don't really feel like it. The important thing to remember here is that your thoughts are not orders, they're merely suggestions, and you have the power to choose which option to follow, just like Monica was saying that you can, you have the power to choose your expectation. Right, and even to some extent, your beliefs. Right. And I'm reminded of a favorite client that we have worked with who has been very committed and very diligent about implementing the practices that we suggest for creating healthy habits. And I believe that he truly came to us wanting to succeed. Oh, and, you know, spoiler alert, he did succeed. He is succeeding. (laughs) Did he ever. But he also had this very deep-seated belief that patterns and habits that were ingrained in childhood are nearly impossible to break. Mm. That they're somehow more deeply wired into our psyche and then cannot be unlearned as adults. And he would use this to justify, for example, why it was so hard for him to not finish whatever was on his plate, even if he wasn't hungry anymore, or maybe to forego dessert at the end of a meal. And he raised this childhood patterning issue over and over again as a problem, as a barrier. Mm. In fact, he even suggested that we do an episode of the Change Academy on this topic. So That's a good idea. Okay, so any long-standing behavior pattern is going to be challenging to unlearn, but I think we can probably all think of lots of things that we did quite habitually as children that we no longer habitually do. And that's, of course, what we challenged him to do and what he did. But my point is just to remind everyone that beliefs are not necessarily facts. They're just things that we've heard or repeated so often that we no longer question their validity. But when you see how powerfully our beliefs impact our results through all these different mechanisms, I hope you can see the value in taking a closer look at beliefs that are not serving you and deciding whether or not you really want or need to believe them or whether there's another belief that would serve you better and could also be true. Now, I've heard it described as when we're children or when we're adolescents, we sort of build a a suit of armor around ourselves that include the things that we think we really like, the things that we really enjoy, the things that we dislike, the things that we don't want to do with our lives. And we sort of build this suit of armor around ourselves. And unless we take the time to reevaluate that suit of armor as we're aging, we never really let go of those things that we put on ourselves to really protect ourselves as children and adolescents. And as we get older, we don't need to protect ourselves so vigorously. And and certainly our, our views of life and the views of the world and the position that we are in the world change. And we can actually not only remove some of that armor and not necessarily replace it, but we can rearrange that armor. We can change it out for something a little softer. It's mm. I thought that was a, a really neat metaphor, a neat way to look at it. Yeah. And also this this whole idea really reminds me of a story that uh, a runner and sports writer, a guy named Alex Hutchinson, tells about his own experience, which falls into this same beliefs category. It's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to try to make it brief here. So Alex said that as a college junior runner, he had been stuck running at a 401 or a 402 for 1500 meters for a couple of years, which for anybody who who doesn't know, that's pretty darn fast. So four minutes in one second, four minutes in two seconds. Right. Okay. 
All right, so then suddenly he actually ran a 3.52 at some small track meet in Quebec. And what he attributes this sudden success to, at least in part, is that during the race, his mid-race splits, which is just somebody telling you how fast you've done each lap of the of the track somebody was shouting that out to him but they shouted it out to him incorrectly (laughs) several seconds off what he was actually running so this error actually led him to believe that he was running faster than he actually was so then he sort of went oh i'm going really fast and he thought about how he was feeling and he reconciled that pace with the feeling of exertion he was having and he was like well I, i think i could go a little bit faster even so he dug deeper than he normally would have for the remainder of the race, and voila, he had a he ran personal best, yeah, had a personal best. So, and then after that, after he established the fact that he could actually run faster than that, the next two races after that, he continued to get faster. He ran three minutes and forty nine seconds, then three minutes and forty four seconds, and he actually wrote an entire book about how this moment actually changed the way he believes the mind plays a role in endurance sports. And he's kind of dedicated a lot of his writing career to exactly that after that. You know, it's a tricky example because it sounds like it may have been an honest mistake. You know, those splits, they just called out the wrong time. And then that was the result. But you know, it, it's sort of, you could see coaches thinking like, hey, I'm just going to start lying to my <laughs> athletes, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think the crux of that story really is that he did prove to himself that he was able to run mm-hmm. faster than that. So then he went on to actually run faster and faster. The whole incident of being lied to is sort of incidental in sure. in the fact that he was able to change his belief in himself and then achieve even even greater things. Which actually ties into one of the core premises of cognitive behavior therapy is that what we think affects how we feel and act. Then what we do affects how we think and feel. And what we feel affects how we think and act. And you can see how that's a circle and that at any point we can intervene in that circle, including the thoughts that we have or the beliefs that we hold or the expectations we hold. And that can have a profound effect on whether we achieve our goals or not especially when we're feeling stuck or we're feeling frustrated or we're feeling hopeless, it's important to remember that we can change our perspective or our expectations. And one way to do that is to just take a moment to ask yourself, well, what else could be true? What else could this mean? How else could I choose to react to this? What are my other choices at this moment? Just taking the time to be curious about what the other options are. You know, this whole conversation got me thinking about the role of testimonials, right? The companies or or coaches will often share their clients' success stories as a sales tool, right? To prove that their approach works. Yeah, the before and after photo. Yeah. In fact, in marketing speak, this is known as social proof, right? Mm. But I see sharing success stories not just as a marketing strategy. I see it as a teaching strategy. And that's why we continue to share success stories to the people that we work with and to help them, maybe even more importantly, help them recognize where they themselves are succeeding, where they might not see it. Hmm. Because it's really a way to sow the seeds of belief that make success possible. When we see others succeeding, it increases our expectations that we can also succeed. And that then increases the chances that we will actually succeed. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about positive affirmations, you know, where we just repeat over and over again, I will succeed, I will succeed, you know, 
for example, the approach that we take with our clients is very structured, very concrete, it's action oriented, but inevitably in the course of that work, you'll try something and it won't work the way that you might've hoped. And that in and of itself doesn't need to result in failure. What results in failure is if you try something and it doesn't work the way you hope. And so you conclude that success is not possible for Mm. you. That's where the failure begins. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, we've all known people who come into every situation convinced that they're going to fail. They're not really interested in hearing about other people's success because they don't think that applies to them, or they're just going to look for the ways in which that person has some sort of advantage that they themselves do not have. Therefore, it can't happen for them. So they're not really looking for evidence that they can be successful. They're looking for evidence to prove that they will fail. And you know what? They usually find it. Oh, yeah, they sure do. So I think our expectation that we are going to succeed does not mean that our success is going to come without any struggle or setbacks. But I think that expectation confers like a certain resilience to those inevitable setbacks and struggles. And it allows us to see them not as evidence that, you know, we don't have what it takes, but simply as evidence that we don't yet understand what we need to understand. We don't yet know what we need to know. Exactly. And that's why my favorite success stories are the ones that include all the ways that it went wrong, all of the ways in which it was a struggle. Because I think what we learn from them is not just that success is possible. We learn what actually goes into success, right? Right. The Dyson vacuum guy with his 5,000 prototypes comes to mind. No, I think there are definitely approaches that are better designed and more evidence-based and maybe even better delivered than others. So you definitely want to do some due diligence before you choose your path. But what I want to say is once you've made up your mind, I would really encourage you to worry less about whether you picked the right program and more time resolving to bring the right stuff to it. Right. A student who's really determined to succeed even at a mediocre school I think is probably going to get a better education than a student at an Ivy League school who's doubtful of their ability to succeed. And it doesn't really matter in this case whether their doubts are about their own capacities or the capacities of the school. Their expectations will tend to be fulfilled. I'm waving my hand madly because I think I was that person who didn't go to the greatest school, but I was so determined and so positive about returning to school, especially at 30 years old, that I, yeah, I succeeded way more than a lot of people around me. Right. But okay, one final story, because I just think this is so cool. And then we'll get into the takeaways and our lab experiment. But I recently heard that a researcher gave both lucky and unlucky people a newspaper and ask them to look through it and tell the researcher how many photographs were inside the newspaper. Wait, 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 hang on. How did they decide who was lucky and who was unlucky? They asked them. (laughs) Oh, so if they think of themselves as lucky people or unlucky people. Right. It's very similar to those studies that we've, I know we've talked about in the past where they've asked people how they view stress. And if they viewed stress as being a damaging thing or a helpful thing. Right. Okay, so this is self, self-described, self self-identified as lucky or unlucky. Exactly. Okay, and then what was the task? They, they were told to look through the newspaper and count how many photographs were inside. Okay. So then on average, the quote-unquote unlucky people took about two minutes to count the photographs, whereas the quote-unquote lucky people took just a few seconds. Wait, why? Yeah, well, because this, 
on the second page of the newspaper, there was actually a message on there that said, stop counting. There are 43 photographs in this newspaper. <laughs> and the message took up like half the page. It was written in type that was over two inches or five centimeters high. Oh, man. It was staring everyone, everyone who was doing this task. It was staring you, them right in the face. But the unlucky people tended to miss it. And the lucky people tended to spot it. So oh they took God. a lot less time to complete the task. Oh, they must have been so embarrassed <laughs> when they saw it. I suppose so. And maybe that even reinforced whether they felt lucky or unlucky. Oh. But. Well, I guess what that really shows us is that luck is less about chance and more about noticing the opportunities for success, mm -hmm. right? Right. And if you believe you're lucky, maybe you're just more likely to notice the good things that are happening to you because you're expecting them to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One more example of why we want to cultivate those beliefs very intentionally. Absolutely. So, okay, let's get to those takeaways. So the first one is that when you are sure you will fail, you sure will. <laughs> the second thing is that your expectations don't just affect your perception and influence your behavior, they actually change how your body responds to the world. That's just crazy. So deep. And finally, just because we expect to succeed, that doesn't mean that success will come without any struggle or any setbacks, but expecting eventual success can make us more resilient. Right. And that's what makes all the difference. Right. All right. How can you apply this information to your life? today, this week. Well, if there's something that you want to achieve, look for other people who have been successful. And this isn't about comparing yourself to them and how they might be further along or be succeeding faster. So resist the temptation to look for all the ways that they're different from you and instead look for the things that you have in common. And be especially attentive to the failures and the setbacks that others experience on their way to success and notice how they respond to them. But most of all, I want to just encourage you to dare to believe that success is possible, even if you're not 100% sure right now how or when it's going to happen. And allow for the possibility that some part of it may actually be easier than you think. And make sure to notice when that happens. Mm -hmm. Send us an email and tell us what you're going to succeed at next. Our email address is hello at changeacademypodcast.com. I can't wait to hear what you're going to succeed at next. See you soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. This has been the Change Academy Podcast with Monica Reinigel and Brock Armstrong. <laughs>